Well, hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. This is the continuation of a special edition of the podcast series in which we periodically examine a major case. In this instance, Lava Jato. And I'm rejoined by John Kalodner from Cleary Gottlieb and Chris DeSaw from FTI Consulting. So welcome back, you guys. Hey, Scott. Hey, Chris. Good to be back. So there are a number of firsts in Lava Jato in terms of how investigations play out in Brazil. Once the former Petrobras director, Nestor Cervero, was arrested, Senator Del Cidio do Amaral, the Workers' Party leader in the upper house, and an old associate of Cervero's became quite understandably concerned. He'd been raising illegal contributions for Senator Amaral for years using the vendor overpayment scheme. And the senator then asked for a meeting with Cervero's son. In a subsequent conversation, which Cervero's son secretly recorded, the senator made several incriminating statements and was subsequently arrested a few weeks later. Up until that point, no sitting senator had ever been arrested in Brazil. So how did this arrest usher in this new phase of Lava Jato? I'll jump in there. Let me say, first off, what well, I absolutely love this question, and it really ties into the reason that there's a Netflix series on Lava Jato. Mechanism, you know, it's fictitious. It's still pretty interesting. But in many ways, the question is great because many have described Lava Jato as really being a triple crisis. And the triple crisis being a legal crisis that then becomes a political crisis that then becomes an economic crisis. But really, Del Siju's arrest and then final plea deal ended up moving the investigation from and, and uh, the prosecution from being around just purely legal issues into the political sphere. And so from my perspective, what's so interesting about that, and if we think about the timeline here, it's a great lens through which to see Lava Jato because ultimately, you know, in November 2015, Del Sigio's arrest, that then causes a whole series of events, which ultimately ends up with Jilma being impeached. And that causes ripple effects all throughout the Brazilian political class. And then the question is, well, why was that? The reason is related to the role that Petrobras was playing, not only within, you know, kind of Brazil generally and, and in the oil and gas industry, but really Brazil's role as the crown jewel of a state-led capitalist political system. So what made Blavajata so impactful, just kind of contextualizing it in Brazilian kind of political economy 101, was effectively what you had, you know, you can think about Petrobras as being the crown jewel in the Brazilian political economy that allowed for the Workers' Party, and not only the Workers' Party, any, any political party, given some of the institutional features of Brazil, to maintain its coalition within the legislature and therefore you know, maintain a, a machine, as it were, which is, which is rather complicated in a multi-party system where you have to cobble together a whole bunch of disparate parties from a whole bunch of political perspectives. And so Del Sigio, his plea deal, literally just a laundry list of how the Brazilian political economy functions. And so he went through and pointed out, okay, here's how it really works, guys. 
And one of the things that, that he did was talk about three parties in particular, which, which were the main parties in Jilma's coalition. And that's the Workers' Party, her party, and Del Sidio's party, and PMDB, I'll get back to that, and then another party, PP, each of which had designated appointments within the Petrobras leadership. So it was very explicit. These were open and strategic decisions about which parties were going to run which parts of Petrobras. Nestor Cervero was beholden to a party called PMDB. And that particular party was the largest party at the time in the legislature. It was also known as the Kingmaker Party because they had the time no ideology effectively and they would switch between you know various leadership within the executive and so ultimately del Sitchia's plea deal walks through this whole narrative of here's how it was done guys while jilma wasn't impeached for anything related to petrobras that was really just a technical fact that was because they decided to go with something called pedaladas fiscais which reserve fiscal management where she she had made some major mistakes that but that was you know for all intents and purposes just done under the auspices of Pedalazas Fiscais but all of the you know, the information that was just pouring out of the political class at that time I mean so again it caused this cascade of effects within the Brazilian political economy it was only once you got you know, Del Sidio's um, arrest and plea deal that that we really got deep insight into the the mechanism of the, the Brazilian political economy. So interesting stuff, to say the least. Yeah, it's a crazy story, too, about how he was, you know, the sort of the sting operation that was run with Tavero's son and hubris, honestly, that Dilcidio just, what he offered, he offered to help him help Severo escape, remove the tag that was would have been on him, and then fly to, I think, Paraguay, is, and uh, right, yeah. you know, offered to pay him off a huge amount of money. I mean, really just showed the extent of the corruption and the money that was involved here. And, you know, like I said, the hubris that he thought he could kind of pull us all off. And, you know, Chris, I think to your point, as uh, thinking about this, you know, not so much from the political perspective, but from the case itself and the enforcement perspective as a former prosecutor, this was really one of the the ways that you get the dominoes to fall. You know, as you said, you know, the senator was able to unmask this whole machine and how it operated and give all of this information to the authorities who were doing the investigation. Such great insight. You really need somebody like that, somebody, an insider and a conspiracy. And, you know, kind of all made possible by the concern that the senator would have had um, about going to jail for a long time. And, you know, the other thing that it does is this kind of an arrest really sends a message to everyone else who was involved. No one is above the law, something that, you know, I don't think had been clear to that point, and that sitting congressmen and senators could be prosecuted, and I think really helped to accelerate things by providing that inside view. And as you said, his plea deal really spelled out in some detail all the various, you know, aspects of the scheme and was, you know, really the foundation of further prosecution. It's really an interesting story, and I think a critical part in the critical phase, critical, you know, inflection point, the uh, Lava Jato investigation. If we might go full circle here, by the way, more recently, he has recanted much of the details, which is obviously not surprising. And he's also trying to get back into Brazilian politics. But but John, you said something, I think it's a very, very good point, which is up until that point, you've had a lot of scandals in Brazil, right, that involved the kind of business class and, and, and elites. And so up until that point, it was, okay, this is something that's going to impact 
certainly, you know, members of Petrobras's executive team and other folks, and there are going to be providers and other people who are going to get indicted. And okay, it's not until you start to get Del Sidio and others that everyone starts entering into a deep panic that realizes, you know, oh my God, this is going to take down the Republic in theory. Yeah, I agree. I, what was unprecedented about this is, okay, now you're actually going up into the bowels of, that has never happened in Brazilian history. It's a, it's a fascinating story and the details and the color, uh, you know, that's provided in all of this is just, you know, really fascinating. The only thing that would, would have made it even more interesting is if they had allowed the offer of helping facilitate his escape play out, because then we could have had another Carlos Gosen story, which I am equally fascinated in. That uh, That is just an amazing. <laughs> so the investigation of Odebrecht, global construction company, really kind of pushed the Lava Jato investigation well beyond Brazil's borders. It revealed that the company had a, a special department dedicated to bribes known as the Division of Structured Operations, which is a, a wonderful euphemism. And they paid nearly $800 million in bribes for more than 100 contracts in a dozen countries over the course of 15 years. Uh, very reminiscent of how Siemens went about it. I wonder if they had some cross-pollination there, maybe. So how has the Odebrecht investigation really changed government infrastructure building and the construction trade in general across Latin America? What I like about this question is it really gets to the third prong of the kind of triple crisis, which is the economic crisis. And if you think about the kind of paradigmatic cases where Lava Jato in particular just frankly decimated the infrastructure industry in, in Latin American countries. And again, this is one of those cases where every country is different. And it's interesting. Um, Scott, you had mentioned yesterday there were 10 different countries that kind of got implicated in the Odebrecht portion. But the, the truth is, I've heard Delton y'all, Don y'all say that if you looked at Lava Jato as a whole, it's 143 countries which I'm not sure even what that means, given the total number of countries on the planet. But the point being, the tentacles went everywhere. And then when you take Latin America and take Odebrecht and look at, it was operating. So A, it was operating everywhere. It's Argentina, Colombia, Venezuela, Dominican Republic, Ecuador. To me, the country that best symbolizes how this trickled into the economy and how just how impactful it was was Peru. And it's fair to say in Peru that Odebrecht was by far the largest infrastructure provider in the country. And by the way, you know, just for the record, there were 23 different Brazilian construction companies that ended up getting implicated in this too, all of which are number, most of which were also operating throughout Latin America. It just turns out Odebrecht was this massive you know, behemoth. I mean, most of the highway projects, the pipeline projects, the airports, there's just a laundry list of concessions and major public projects in Peru that were being executed by Odebrecht. And, in, and they were in the middle of execution. And so again, we talk about going from legal to political to economic. Peru is a perfect example of that. It's implicated five presidents in Peru, which I don't even know how that makes sense. The, the legislature was disbanded effectively because of this. I mean, you had a, a president who committed suicide largely because of speculation of potential indictments. And, and so the political crisis, once again, translated into in Peru 
a massive dirt. Odebrecht had to be restructured. Odebrecht was paying billions in fines. I think, you know, John, it'd be interesting to hear what actually happened with the DOJ and SEC. But, I, you know, Odebrecht is certainly the top three, I think, in terms of, yeah, of, of just dollar figures. Of significant fines. But I think they ultimately got a bit of a break because of inability to pay issues. And they ended up not having to pay, I believe, the full amount, but still a significant amount. And as you said, it's not just in the United States. And so because of that, you had basically both in Peru and in Brazil, massive unemployment in the infrastructure space. You had a number of companies that were barred from working on infrastructure projects at all. And I would say both countries are really still only recently recovering. You know, in fact, it's been, I don't agree with this criticism, but it has been a big criticism of Lava Jato by certain political figures of this just decimated Anecdotally, I remember going into Rio in the post Lava Jato period, and it seemed like every Uber driver and, and taxi that I would get into was a former Odebrecht engineer, literally. And so it really had this just massive impact on the industry. What it did cause is countries had to look for other providers that could fill the void. It did allow opportunities for smaller providers in both countries. There was a point where Petrobras had come out and said, hey, to all these American construction companies, you should come in right now because there's a huge need for support. And none of the Brazilian providers can actually work on these because they've all been banned by the TCU and the CGU. (laughs) To make a long story short, the industry is only now starting to recover. The other optimistic component is that both countries, if you look at Peru and, and Brazil, have taken enormous steps to try to clean up the public bidding processes. I agree with all that. I mean, I think it, it, it has had a tremendous impact across the region. I mean, you mentioned Peru, but obviously um, Colombia and I believe Mexico as well. And, yeah. you know, Chris, in our last discussion, you mentioned how the industries that have been most affected have also done a lot to improve their controls. And I think that is a positive outcome. I mean, if you're looking for silver linings here, there has been a greater focus on controls and transparency, both from the government side and on bidding, but also on part of the companies themselves. That's a positive outcome of all of this. And I think governments have tried to look at ways in which they can prevent this from happening again. And one way which I find interesting is a lot of the corruption here occurred in the in connection with amendments to the contracts, which once the contractor that was picked, you know, you could keep ginning up change, huge change orders, change orders <laughs> that were basically yeah. unsupervised. And so there are limitations now that are placed on that, which I think is a, you know, again, another important control that should help limit this from happening in the future. I mean, the impact, it's really on unprecedented. And frankly, given the scope of what was going on, it's not surprising that that was the case. One of the elements of an effective compliance program, the the hallmarks, is pre-acquisition due diligence and post-close integration. I would imagine transactions in Brazil have been significantly impacted since the advent of Lava Jato. How has acquisition due diligence changed? I mean, what are buyers and investors doing differently now than maybe when corruption enforcement was less of a factor? I think that's a great question, Scott. I think buyers and investors, in our experience, have become really hyper-focused on this issue. Honestly, it's not surprising. I mean, the risks are significant. Part, of course, penalties and risk to people, the cost of the investigations that happen, cost of penalties, of course, as I mentioned, but also the time and energy of executives and you know your your people who have to spend you know an inordinate amount of time managing these matters if there is an investigation and then of course on top of all of that 
there's reputational harm to the company that debarment. I mean, there's all sorts of things. And then, you know, you have to consider if ultimately there is a significant corruption issue, you know, it's going to impair the value of the asset. And you have to ask yourself if bribery was the business model for that asset and completely impairs the value of the investment. So not surprising that I think this has become such a critical issue for buyers and investors. And I think what they're doing is trying to do everything possible to get more information up front. It's obviously important to do as much as possible and to get information from the company. And I think you know you see that push and pull in connection with every deal. You know, there are lots of third-party resources available to companies and their lawyers to help with that. And you know, obviously FTI is a big one in that space. And but you know, providing background checks, for example, on the target company, on its partners, its executives, its third parties that they deal with, getting information on as much information as possible on the third parties that the company deals with and assessing the target deals with and assessing the risks. I think now it's pretty standard for companies to want to see and expect to see in the target anti-corruption policies and procedures. They want to evaluate the integrity program and internal controls that the company has. And they want to do everything possible to try to verify that, whether it's conducting interviews of key personnel or even in some instances doing transaction testing if possible. And if they don't get that immediately in pre, they're going to want to do it as quickly as possible in post-acquisition diligence work to make sure that there isn't a significant issue that they've invested or bought themselves into to the extent they have control over the entity afterwards. And they're going to want to, as quickly as possible, try to bring that entity within the scope of their compliance program to try to head off any potential issues and to identify them as quickly as possible. Everything that we've seen in Lava Jato and you know, the other and similar investigations really shows that there is a premium on pre-acquisition diligence and certainly post-acquisition diligence as well. I will say this, if there's one thing that I've seen change pretty dramatically is actually, in some sense, it's become much more challenging because of the amount of information that has come out of Lava Jato. So perfect example, let's take Dilsidio Amaral's plea deal. The amount of, of information that is just in the plea deals, hundreds of plea deals, where there's speculation about you know this individual being involved, this company was brokering this, this, what that's done is it's caused the situation where it is not uncommon for us to identify some allegation against any acquisition target. So it's, it's very common that we run our reputational searches, we will do source inquiries with human sources, and we'll come back with allegations. And so I will say one of the things that's changed, and if there is, I think, some value to what what FDI does in a, in a lot of these cases to contextualize existing allegations and to really you work on understanding how serious a given allegation might be and how it played out within the numerous agencies. And that's the other piece about this is you have so many different agencies that have gotten involved in Lava Jato. You have the CGU. Kaji, the antitrust authorities, you have the Ministerio Publico, both at the federal level and the state level. You have the federal police, you have state police, and that's just to name a few, all of which fortunately actually publish a lot of this data. I do think one of the things that's changed is just sifting through the noise, you know, around allegations and the like. You know, while that's certainly a positive for the country, that can be a challenge for companies go, you know, going in from an acquisition standpoint. Thanks, you guys. So American businessmen and women have a bit of a reputation for being pretty geocentric. We tend to look at business practices and operations through a decidedly U.S. lens. And doing so can really result 
in companies getting blindsided when they fail to consider the many differences in business practices and culture, the much blurrier interplay between government and commercial activity. And then, you know, where does business ethics sit? So what do non-Brazilians need to understand about Brazil when thinking about doing business there for the first time? I really like this question for a number of reasons. Part of it is because there's something I really enjoy doing is kind of helping bridge the U.S. and, and Brazilian you know, business landscapes, both from a risk management standpoint, but also from, a, from an opportunity standpoint down in Brazil. And so I would say first thing is that corruption is, is a multifaceted problem in the, and challenge in the country. And the reason why I think that that's important is... Um, Culturally, there, there's a risk management component to that, and then like a, a responsibility component to when someone's going down into Brazil and in emerging markets, developing markets, kind of generally. The first thing is that you know Brazil is a state-led economic growth model, and that's not going to change. So everything we just talked about from a political economy 101 in Brazil. There's a coalitional presidential system, it's multi-party system, and it's a system that is philosophically, and it's been committed to kind of state-led growth models since the 1930s. That hasn't changed. I mean, that's a constant. John and I actually have a, a mutual friend, Professor Matt Taylor, who is maybe one of the leading gringos who focuses very heavily on Brazilian political economy. And he has described it as a decadent developmentalist model. And one of the things he does point out there is that corruption is just a feature of a much broader set of political and institutional issues. It's not necessarily negative or positive, not even to go in that in that direction. But the point is, it exposes companies to a lot of additional risks and challenges they may not be expecting at a very strategic level. Especially true if you're in the extractives and infrastructure or anything where you're having regular and frequent touch points with the government. There's a risk management component to that, which you know I think non-Brazilians need to be very, very focused on and, and strategic about. The last thing I, I will say is there's a responsibility component to it too, which is you know if you're going into Brazil or you're an investor and you're going in particularly for the first time, you need to view your role from a broader perspective of making decisions that facilitate Brazilian democracy, that strengthen Brazil's institutions, that help on issues like inequality. And I don't mean this from a political perspective at all. I mean this from a basic governance and ethical responsibility kind of standpoint. You as a, as a non-Brazilian have a special responsibility to try to do the right thing ethically. And so I would say that's that lesson is one that we certainly try to impart to you know, companies going into Brazil for the, for the first time. I mean, to me, I always think of a famous line by Tom Jobim that Brazil's <laughs> not for beginners. I've heard that on a number of occasions, and I always think it, it fits well. Brazil is obviously has been ranked by the World Bank as one of the more difficult places to do business for companies. I think in like 2019, it was ranked 124th. And there's lots of reasons for that. Complicated laws, overlapping jurisdictions, the bureaucracy difficult tax and bankruptcy and infrastructure laws. And then, you know, when you think about it, just from, again, my world with my focus here, which is the investigations perspective and the risks that companies take when they operate is its laws are complicated in that, in that world too, it, with overlapping enforcement. There's, you know, federal, state and local potential enforcement, including of the Clean Companies Act could be investigated by a number of different agencies. There's a, you know, literally like an alphabet soup of agencies that can, you know, investigate you. We've talked about some of them on the podcast episode today, but 
you know, there's the MPF, there's the CGU, there's the AGU, there's the TCU, and then there's all the state and local versions of those too. So I think that creates a lot of risk for companies and they need to understand that if there is an investigation, those various iterations of those organizations are likely to get involved. And there's a further complication, which is companies operating in Brazil when there is an investigation. There's typically a shadow investigation component of that involving the auditor. Um, and you know, auditors often in Brazil get very, very involved in investigations. They insist on being part of it. They want to understand what's being done, which I think is you know obviously understandable. But they also, in some instances, would withhold sign-off on financial statements until certain steps are taken. And they kind of do an investigation or an audit of the investigation, and they're going to want to be kept in the loop. There's a you're really a need to do careful coordination. And I think that just adds to kind of the complexity of dealing with these situations, which kind of takes us back to what we were talking about just a minute ago and the importance of kind of going in with eyes open. And part of that is the diligence that you do if you are thinking about starting up in Brazil or investing or buying a company that operates in Brazil and you need to kind of keep all these things in mind. I think it's a testament to how sophisticated Brazil is. I find, you know, all the parties now post Lava Jato, there's been a learning by doing, right? You've had years now of people developing tools, expertise, perspectives, as painful as it sometimes can be in a shadow investigation. I'm encouraged by the insight that the auditors often have into, hey, did you use data analytics? Did you use this tool? Did you do this? Why did you do, why did you choose to select these transactions as opposed to these People are getting smart about investigations. And so the great irony of that quote is it shows you how much Brazil is not for beginners or for amateurs, um, is the very fact that that quote itself is disputed uh, in terms of who, who's the oh, author really? yeah. over, was it, you know, Julio Vargas, was it Tom Jobim, was it this? Even the quote itself is not for beginners. Well, you know, the, the real challenge of podcast is coming up with a good name for an episode. So thank you for just giving me one. You know, it's funny, um, Chris and I were talking the other day about shadow investigations and sometimes how painful they can be. But, you know, they're, they're very important for publicly traded companies for the auditors to, to sign off. I don't know if you know this, John, but the only other time Cleary Gottlieb was represented on the podcast was Elisa Vicenz was on and the episode topic was about shadow investigation. She and I actually uh, were shadowed in Brazil and uh, it was one of those painful experiences to which I am referring. So <laughs> not through any fault of Lisa's, but you know, a necessary thing, but yeah, and a very interesting dynamic and very you know, outside of our industry, people don't know what they are. You know, John, can I ask just a quick question? Um, your experience outside of Brazil, how common are these you know, shadow investigations just kind of in other markets. I, mean, I know I know they're common everywhere. And I wonder what your experience has been like. Yeah. Auditors are obviously going to be involved to some extent. I think it's the level of involvement and the interest in digging into the investigation itself, even reviewing key documents. I mean, that level of involvement is just different in Brazil, in, in my experience. Again, clearly it's an important role that auditors play in, in this, and it's important that they be kept in the loop to some extent, but it's just the level of involvement in Brazil. It's a different kind of involvement, really sort of getting in the weeds in a, in a much different way. I second that. In the past few years, there's been some very strong 
pushback against Lava Jato, whereas previously, you know, the folks that were bringing this case and investigating it, most notably Judge Morrow, were, were described in very heroic terms, less so in recent years. Some might even call it a, an orchestrated attack from the judiciary, executive, and legislature who've been, you know, slowly really seeking to reverse the prosecutorial successes of Lava Jato and other anti-corruption measures in Brazil. You know, the political class has, has struck back and prosecutors who successfully led Lava Jato, including Judge Mora, are under attack themselves. In some instances, Lava Jato is really the platform that certain politicians are using to uh, relaunch their derailed political careers that were really thought to have been ended by Lava Jato. So what have some of the more recent anti-Lava Jato developments been? And what does that mean for the future of corruption enforcement and transparency in Brazil? Well, Scott, I think you've touched on it and we've we've hit on it at other points in our discussion, but you know, it is a bit of a pendulum and the pendulum has swung back against the prosecutors to some extent. Although I think there are, again, as I think I said in the beginning, there there are reasons to, for continued optimism on the, you know, the continued enforcement of the anti-corruption laws in Brazil. I mean, one significant development, I think this really kind of all really came into focus in middle of 2019. We mentioned the Intercept report and their publication of messages between Judge Moro at the time and the Lava Jato prosecutor, Delton Delagnol, talked about this a little bit, which were you know, shared with the Intercept. What the press and the public and politicians saw was that Moro seemed to be giving guidance at certain points in time to the prosecutors um, at key steps in the investigation. And it called into question, you can certainly argue about to what extent, but it called into question his impartiality Anytime there is, of course, questions about the fairness of an investigation, particularly one on the scale and public focus of Lava Jato, it's going to undermine the public perception and perhaps more significantly give fuel to the critics of the investigation and of the aggressive prosecutorial tactics that were being used in Lava Jato. And there's been other legal issues that have come up. We've talked about the use of preventive detentions. And traditionally, there had been a new theory that was implemented of detaining defendants pending the finality of their conviction. I think in sort of in the past, defendants could could be only imprisoned, you know, after their conviction and all their appeals all the way up to the Supreme Court had run its course and the conviction was totally final. But with Lula and, and some others, they were imprisoned under this theory that allowed them to be incarcerated after the second level appeal was complete, the Court of Appeals. And I believe there's two other appeals after that can, can claim to be an expert on all these issues, but that's my understanding. But Lula was was released when the Supreme Court actually changed its mind about this and went back to this traditional view that you can only be imprisoned on your sentence once your, all of your appeals were exhausted. And so long as there were no grounds for this preventive detention, such as risk of flight or risk of committing more crimes. And then, you know, significantly, of course, for Lula himself, the Supreme Court actually decided some of his appeals and appeals that decisions that appeared to, that were against the prosecutors. And, you know, there were challenges that uh, Lula made to the jurisdiction and you know, the prosecutors in Curitiba and then their alleged impartiality. The fact that Lula was released and the case was sent back down to the trial court, again, just sort of further undermined prosecutors. That, of course, has a big impact in and of itself. The fact that Lula is now out and he was such a significant figure in the prosecutions. And then, you know, you take a look at the Lava Jato task force itself and the view of the Bolsonaro administration, which kind of started seeming like they were going to be very committed to anti-corruption prosecutions, but particularly given the allegations against some of Bolsonaro's children and it seems to have taken a very different view. And the Lava Jato task force has now been dissolved and the prosecutors have been reassigned. 
you know, all of those things, I think, clearly seem to signal that the pendulum has swung against these kinds of investigations. But I, as I mentioned, I do think there's some positive still. You know, Scott, you mentioned this, and I think, Chris, you did as well. There, you know, there is such a tremendous growth in, in the experience of the prosecutors all across the country as a result of all the work that they did in Lava Jato and sort of the related and many related investigations. They clearly have a playbook for these investigations now. They have a number of, of investigative techniques, which they're very sophisticated in using, and they're able to continue the work that they've been doing, just you know, maybe not under the title of the or the auspices of a Lava Jato type task force. You also have external authorities like the Department of Justice and the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which are continue to be very active in prosecuting corruption. And you know, to the extent there's multinational companies or issuers, they will continue to, to push investigations forward, which in turn, they have a good working relationship now with the Brazilian prosecutors in various jurisdictions. And yeah, they have a playbook of how to, to work with them and do these investigations together. And then I think on top of all that, you do have companies that have, I think, really made this uh, improving their anti-corruption policies and procedures and recognizing the risk. That's been a big and significant change in Brazil. Um, you know, companies, I think, still have incentives to report wrongdoing and conduct internal investigations, given the risk. And you know, that in and of itself can drive investigations and lead to companies wanting to take advantage of the leniency opportunities under the Clean Companies Act or under in the U.S. under the Department of Justice's corporate enforcement policy. They have incentives to report wrongdoing to authorities. And, you know, just even as we were talking just now, I thought of another reason why, you know, there's reason for optimism is, you know, obviously auditors, they have an incentive to have companies conduct investigations and if they're not satisfied, then they will take action, whether it's withholding financial statements or themselves um, potentially reporting wrongdoing. So there's lots of, I think, reasons for continued optimism and investigations will continue, that there will continue to be a focus on, on corruption. Obviously, there's risk and political environment is what it is now, and it's not necessarily as supportive as it once was. But I'm still optimistic that these kinds of investigations will continue and the anti-corruption work will continue to be a big part of what prosecutors and companies are, are, are focused on. I agree wholeheartedly with all that. The way I kind of think about how things are unfolding in Brazil is twofold. On the one hand, there are reasons to be very pessimistic about what's going on from a political class standpoint. Ironically, companies in the private sector are going way beyond anything that's happening um, at the so level of the sovereign. I think that's a phenomenon happening everywhere in the world. That's kind of, you know, we see it in the United States. In many ways, the capital markets are going way beyond anything that's dictated by the sovereign in and of itself. So it doesn't really matter what happens in some sense politically. Some people criticize that. Companies like Apple are larger than most countries. If you were to look at their GDP and look at Apple's gross revenue, they're like a sovereign. And so if companies like that are going to be pushing their cultural norms and ethical and governance norms across their multinational organizations and, and, and global investors are doing the same, that has a, a massive impact on the business culture itself. So I'm super optimistic about that. Going back to the pessimistic stuff, maybe this makes me persona non grata of this administration, but you know, Bolsonaro said, there's no more corruption in my government. Let, let's just say we have a lot of reasons to be skeptical that he magically, to your point, John, he came in on an anti-corruption platform. The, his whole platform, I'm the anti-labor you know, group. I'm not going to put the machine in. I'm not going to go back to politics as usual. I know there's coalitional presidentialism. Tomala, Dhaka, all that stuff is gone. In fact, I'm going to make Sergio Moro my minister of justice. And he came in with literally won the election, arguably, because of his anti-corruption stance. 
And he jumped into the wave of and the, the tide that had started in 2013 of civil society being so upset with all this stuff that they wanted something to happen. Great. Very quickly, to those of us who kind of follow Brazil, unsurprisingly, again, this is the Empire Strikes Back component of there are so many institutional features of the Brazilian political economy that make that stance virtually impossible to take. I mean, we all knew that it was untenuous in the way he, he was setting it out and that that was going to be a problem because you can't govern if you're not having some form of coalitional presidentialism in an environment which is multi-party, it has a multi-party system where you have to do this to, to govern. You know, there's a good way to do it and a bad way to do it. And so I think what you've seen is the executive has struck back for lots of different reasons. The STF and the Supreme Court and the judiciary has struck back judicially. But one thing that happened is potentially somewhat problematic is they moved a lot of these issues to the electoral court, right? If it has to do with campaign finance now, which which corruption scandal doesn't have to do with campaign finance? Like there's always a potential campaign component to all of these things. And I'm not sure that the Supreme Electoral Court has the investigative and or criminal mindset to be able to deal with these issues in the way that they you know historically have um and then i look at the legislature and i almost like no comment <laughs> why it's easy to see why at the end of the day it was like a third of the legislature was potentially implicated in going back to del Sigio do amaral's you know plea deal the number of characters in brazilian politics who were implicated is just overwhelming many of whom are still there many of whom are are leading you know committees and you have a situation currently kind of inside baseball stuff but you are in a it's not really a mexican standoff but it's it's a brazilian standoff which is the legislature is extorting the the executive who is potentially extorting the judiciary and everybody has you know has their gun pointed at the other from a political class standpoint i think the only thing that can fix that is civil society and unfortunately, you know, while the business kind of sector and the private sector, I think great things are happening. In fact, I, th I also think, John, something that you mentioned really is critical, which is the international cooperation with the DOJ and the SEC and anti-corruption authorities around the world. But John, without giving any details away, but you and I have both been before the, the SEC. I was shocked by the extent of their knowledge and familiarity with Brazilian inside baseball. Right. They're mentioning ministers. They're mentioning hyper details about the inner workings of Brazilian politics. And so you don't get to rewind the clock on that in terms of how familiar the relationships that they've developed with the prosecutors in Brazil. Uh, I feel like there's a whole bunch of Brazilianists at the SEC and the DOJ right now that, that know more, they know more about Brazilian corruption and politics than, than we do. All of that is to say, I do think there are grounds for optimism, but there are these headwinds. And I hope that Brazilian civil society and the kind of broader anti-corruption community in Brazil continues to do whatever it can to you know, strengthen the legacy of Lava Jato. The good part is once you have that legacy, it will always be, I mean, you have the laws in place, you have the, the changes in place, it, you know, th there's still memories of all the good things that were done. And so I think it hopefully in Brazilian history, it's still viewed as a very pivotal moment and an aspiration for what, what really can happen in Brazil. So, you know, maybe what Bolsonaro meant by there's no more corruption in his administration is there's also no less corruption in his administration. 
Well, this has been a really great discussion. I, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot from both of you guys. That's all the time we have today. Really appreciate both of you spending so much time on this topic with me. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. Always great Thanks, to talk John. To Thanks, Scott. This is, this is a lot of fun. We, we definitely need to do it again. So that was Cleary Gottlieb partner, John Kalodner, and FTI Managing Director, Chris Dessau. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, an FTI Consulting Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest that you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudeatsstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>